immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Spatial, the immersive audio software that gives a new dimension to sound. Spatial gives creators the tools to create interactive soundscapes using our powerful 3D offering tool. The software modernizes traditional channel-based audio by rethinking how we hear and feel immersive experiences anywhere. To find out more, go to www.spatiallink.com. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 73, with me, your host, Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. Hi, Monica. How are you? Happy New Year. Hello. It's our first episode in 2023. I know. It is a new year, isn't it? We've got loads of exciting guests and projects coming up in the pipeline, which we'll unveil as as the time goes by. But our today's guest is Arjun van der Schoot. Arjun studied music technology at... Utrecht School of Arts, after which Arjun and four of his fellow graduates started Audio Ease in 1995. He was freelancing recording classical music, minoring in classical guitar, and majoring in software development for audio and music. Together, they made about 10 products before their big break, the Altiverb, which became an industry standard. The 360 pound suite came out of the fierce hope that an old affection ambisonics would now finally definitely make it because somebody thought of it in the context of head tracked VR and application that requires headphones. In Arjun's opinion, the only medium it is perfect for. Arjun, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we dive in, could you pronounce your own name correctly? Because I'm pretty sure I've butchered it. Well, let's just do the first one. It's it's Arjen. That's that would be completely perfect Dutch. But even in in the Netherlands, some people say Arjen. So kind of skip the r in the middle. Arjen Arjen is fine. Okay. Well, um, obviously we got a little bit of a gist uh, how it all began uh, from the intro. But like, let's hear it from yourself, Arjen. Let's go all the way to the beginning and please tell us your journey into the audio industry and the founding of Audio Is. So we were music technology students in in uh, 89, 90 I started, no, actually 88, 89. So this was just about the onset of computers in uh, music studios. Um, the, the platform in which to record uh, digital audio was called uh, DigiDesign back then, that turned into Avid, uh, and the program was called Sound Designer. Then that just that had just emerged, um, and um, we were uh, five guys that were programming for audio. But usually that meant that you were in uh, kind of arty sound creation uh, projects, and um, but because we were coding for audio, we could actually write an audio file, which was uh, the ticket into uh, many workflows. Because back then, we were all freelancers in studios, music studios as well as students. And um, I myself, for instance, ran into situations where music studios were invited to do multimedia audio. Back then, it was for CD-ROM and CDI. 
so like a reggae studio would suddenly be asked to create uh, 40,000 flower names for an encyclopedia or something. And um, uh, they would hire a voice and record all that stuff and then have somebody cut out 40,000 files and name them and normalize them. And the end stage of that would be, um, we call that uh, wallpaper table sessions. They would hire Macintosh computers and get in really a wallpaper table, a table on which you uh, lay out your wallpaper before you uh, get it onto the walls um, and put the computers on the table and then hire people to do open, select all, normalize, save. Do you want to save this? Yes. Open, select all, normalize, save. Do you want to save this? Yes. 40,000 times on a production. So we thought, you know, we couldn't probably automate this thing. And that was our first commercial uh, project. Um, I think that was even before we were called AudioEase. But um, that must have been around 1993, 1994, somewhere around there. Um, So we made a batch normalizer, basically, uh, putting a few poor people out of work right away, right there. Uh, And um, we've been keeping that going ever since, making sample rate converters, uh, little things to add, little silences before uh, sound files, converting sound files, bit depth, and then we grabbed the whole thing together and created Barbabatch, which was a batch sound file conversions tool, which, which still exists, by the way. Um, and that uh, that was supposed to be able to do everything. So that did all the sound file formats and all the um, the processing that we had thought of in one convenient tool. And that was our first product. And it was actually purchased by companies on the other side of the world. And in 1995, that was pretty exciting, actually. Uh, Electronic Arts picked them up to do uh, um, audio for their games. Uh, Mercedes uh, picked it up because they wanted all the German street names in their navigation software, stuff like that. So we were kind of flattered that uh, these gigantic uh, companies um, would uh, actually pay us money to uh, write or, or to sell them the software that we had made. And uh, that was motivation enough for us to just keep going with doing the kind of dull work in, uh, uh, in sound file conversion until after, I, I guess actually after a couple of years, uh, we thought, you know, we can um, we we can do better. Let's let's make uh, audio plugins, and then for that we chose the platform of the audio sequencer that we were using, which was Mark of the Unicorn Digital Performer. Um, they had just started up their plugin format, and so it was completely barren the whole landscape there were no plugins only their own and they were uh, very few and not so creative so we could kind of come up with anything and it would be in demand is what we thought so we made six of those plugins and um, then uh, at some point we made altiverb and that is a a story in itself how that started Um, you got time for that absolutely 
Well, one of the last things that we made for Mark of the Unicorn Digital Performer was a, a, a plugin called Periscope, which was um, you could see the the uh, the FFT graph uh, bouncing around on your screen, and then wherever you saw the area that you would, it's it's it was a, it's a lot what what uh, FabFilter does uh, now. So you you both see the uh, the spectral content in a spectrum analyzer and you are able to equalize in the same spot. And for that, we had we had um, decreased the latency of that thing by utilizing something that was in a power PC, which were, which were the, the Macintosh computers back then, that it was called an Altivec chip. The Altivec chip within one clock cycle was able to do four multiply adds. So multiply four sets of numbers and add them to a total. Um, so that uh, that in one clock cycle is that sped up the the whole process quite some, and we started to realize that there was more possible probably on these desktop computers. And um, uh, right around then, um, we got a call from a guy that was kind of a subsidy hunter. I get these calls every now and then, and these days I'm not interested anymore. But back then we were quite eager. And broke, by the way, so that helped. Um, so uh, the subsidy hunter said, "You know, if there's any technical subsidies that I can hunt down for you, I will take fifteen percent of uh, anything I can get you." And uh, then we thought, "Okay, that's eighty-five for us, right?" So uh, let's let this guy investigate what uh, what's out there. So he came up with a technical innovation subsidy by the state that said that if you were doing basically doing anything technologically novel, then uh, they would kind of, uh, you, you wouldn't have to pay any taxes on the salaries that you paid on those projects. So we said, okay, let's try that. But um, I'm afraid we're not doing anything technologically novel, really. It's uh, just repackaging old DSP stuff that we have. And uh, anything that we did was done in, I don't know, Music 5 or C-Sound or by universities already. We weren't that novel. So he said, ah, it's think broader. Just think of something. And um, so we thought of something that we had found in SoundHack by Tom Irby. Uh, which was a program that did a, a plethora of of uh, s- uh, signal processing tricks. One of them was called Convolve. And um, with that, uh, we had already produced acoustics, but it was non-real-time. So we thought, what if we can kind of uh, decrease the... Um, uh, complexity of an impulse response in such a way, maybe by lowering sample rates in certain bands or whatever, do trickery, make it an MP3 or I don't know what, but decrease the complexity of an impulse response in such a way that uh, the calculations would be easier on the computer and we can have some sort of a like preview mode in which you would dial in your reverb and then when you're happy with it, you hit render and you go to bed and the next morning you will have your file ready for you in in uh, glorious 44.1K 16-bit audio back then, I guess. Um, so we were looking to scale down the impulse responses on on uh, acoustics as just to be technologically novel. And then Renier, one of my partners, um, 
he uh, he he worked through the night one day, and then in the morning there was a sticky on the screen of our uh, of our main computer at AudioEase, and he said, um, "We can do uh, 1.2 seconds of stereo convolution." And my mind was blown right away because I thought that that is like every single rock studio. So we have a rock studio product right here. Um, he also said that it would bog down the computer and make it blow its fans and uh, take about 80% of the processing available. But um, I thought that that won't be a problem. People will buy a computer just to run this thing if they can do rock studios with this. So next night, he had slept all day through. Uh, next night, he was at it again. And the next day, he had doubled that. He had doubled that to 3.6, 3.4 seconds. And then I thought, wait a minute, these are small concert halls. And this is how this thing happened on stickies on our screens in the morning. I was very excited to go to work, I can tell you that. So that was actually not with reduced complexity. So we said the hell with the subsidy we'll just we'll just uh, make a product out of this um, and do real-time convolution on the on a on a desktop computer and um, we started improving and then quickly we we realized that we also had to record impulse responses for that ourselves because nobody else would and nobody else understood what to do so we started figuring out how to do that. And luckily we had some classical recording experience and some friends who had. So uh, we started doing our first rooms and started building a, a real product out of that. And then we found out that there was a, a patent on the process that Renier had found out. This is a, a, this is a risk that you always run when you're programming plugins there is every chance that what what you find out has already been found out by somebody else who patented it. And um, they have to make uh, an actual implementation of it because you cannot patent just an idea. But um, in this case, there was a company called Lake in Australia and they had a patent on uh, the trick that um, we used to break up the impulse response and the audio to do the convolution with very low latency. And without this low latency trick, we wouldn't have a real-time product. So uh, this was pivotal to, uh, to our process. So uh, we put the whole project uh, in the freezer. And um, after a month or two of finding out how bad it would be if we would uh, just try and circumvent this patent and us deciding that we didn't want to go there I just called up the guy in Australia which was not so well you know I had to wait till like four in the morning to uh, make the call and it turned out that the guy was very well you know he was almost sorry that we had found it and that we had put in so much effort and uh, he said I, I was never I, I never patented this thing to uh, prevent anybody from doing it. I just wanted to make a buck out of this uh, this implementation that I had, and uh, so we can strike a deal. And he proposed something, and then we said, okay, well, you know, we'll just make the product a, a bit more expensive by exactly that amount, and then we'll see who uh, still wants to pick it up. And we took it from there. And that was, um, that was Altiverb. 
I was a bit afraid that the product was uh, bigger than the previous six plugins, the ones that had done reasonably well, we thought. Um, uh, but um, I thought this might be of a different magnitude, this Altiverb thing. So uh, I decided I didn't want to market that myself. I didn't. I didn't see myself uh, building up NAM booths uh, and stuff like that uh, on the other side of the world. So I thought maybe we should actually sell the whole product to Mark of the Unicorn, or maybe at least have them distribute it, because that's a bigger company. We were still the five of us, and. Um, so I flew over to Boston, where Mark of the Unicorn was, and there was a there was a very um, interesting meeting with uh, lots of technicians and support guys uh, cramming all into a little uh, into a little room on Massachusetts Boulevard, um, and um, I demo demoed my product, and they were in in awe. But the boss of the company, Robert, was not not in the meeting so uh jim uh, the guy that does uh marketing for mark of the unicorn he i saw him go over to uh the boss and um he uh i saw them discuss something and then uh robert the boss came out and the first question he asked me was um what would be a satisfactory result for you uh, when you step on the plane back home, and I thought, uh, I, I really don't know. I may probably that you take this product off my hands so that I can't screw it up myself. And he said to me, uh, "Well, you know, for us, this is going to be one of our children, and for you, this is going to be your big break. We will never be able to give this the attention this product deserves." So you're always going to end up being unhappy with us. So I suggest you go home and try it yourself. And I could see Jim, just the marketing guy, he was kind of defeated. He was hoping to uh, spread the news to his customers and stuff like that. Marketing guys always want new stuff to talk about. And um, Robert just went back to his office and I went uh, on a plane empty-handed and told my partners about uh, the result and we ended up trying it ourselves and I'm very, very happy with that. So I'm sure he isn't listening, but if he would be, I would say thank you, Robert, for that. Um, so that's how, um, that's the first, what, uh, six years of Elderverb right there or of AudioEase right there. Wow. I, I was getting goosebumps when you were telling the story. It's mm -hmm. quite gripping, actually. I still feel the excitement. And, you know, I, I every now and then I return to the excitement because right last week I have been recording in the same rooms that I have been recording in the first weeks of Altiverb because we are now obviously trying to expand Altiverb to do uh, Dolby Atmos. We need more channels, right? And um, uh, more channels of convolution for that uh, in the impulse responses. And um, for for ninety percent of the rooms that we have, we actually have enough uh, recordings to do Atmos because we have every time we were there, we were recording many more microphone positions than we actually uh, ended up releasing. 
So uh, I could go back into the catalog and compile Atmos versions of the existing recordings, but not for some of the rooms. So uh, we re return to some of the rooms to do additional recordings to add them to the, in, in the meantime, 20-year-old recordings. And now in, my, in the room that I'm sitting in right now, I can compare these recordings and they sound exactly the same. And that's another... The, the ones that I have, I have just, just to try it out, I've tried um, recording in the same microphone positions in these halls that, um, that I had been in the, in the first place. And they, um, they match so nicely, um, which uh, just shows me that these, these rooms that I record in, I, they are sometimes centuries old. They will outlive me. But the recordings I made haven't, haven't uh, aged either. They're they're just the sample rate really hasn't changed and the bit depth hasn't changed. Uh, we were recording twenty four bits right from the start. Um, so um, yeah, that those are moments when I when I return to the same excitement as uh, as back then when I thought this is this is way too big. It's it's uh, I I can't screw this up myself. I remember that week, and um, I re I returned to that excitement every now and then. Just last week, by listening to these recordings again, I, I love hearing you know kind of the process behind you know getting some of these things off the ground, and you know kind of what it takes to actually you know build something like what you've built. And I know, so Audio Ease didn't necessarily participate in software design for spatial audio until you released the 360 pan suite. Um, what led you to that decision? Well, even before Audio Ease, as a student, I was um, infatuated with uh, binaural audio. Um, it was just, um, you see, Altiverb comes from the same source, I think, because it's about. Uh, making something sound absolutely real whether you whether that's nice or not uh, i mean a lexicon might be nicer on many many sources but um if you want to make something absolutely sound something absolutely real then um you need uh convolution impulse responses binaural audio is one puzzle piece in that that just takes away the the delivery problem completely if you have uh, if you record with microphones in your own in your own ears and especially if you are able to calculate the headphones that you're listening in it with if you can calculate them out of the whole uh, delivery chain then the whole thing becomes so transparent I'm I'm not sure who coined the phrase virtual reality but I always thought that's that that referred mostly to 3D uh, picture. And um, I didn't ever think that uh, I was looking at reality, looking at any graphic media thing, a film or uh, goggles or whatever. I never thought I was actually there. But even in those earliest binaural recordings, I just couldn't tell the difference between real audio and stuff that I was listening to in my headphones. And um, so that to me was the ultimate virtual reality. It was, you are completely there. So I have been making binaural recordings with cheap 9-volt Electrets uh, since, since uh, early 90s. 
some of the moments I have on my dead tapes, which is what I used back then for that, are are just, um, you know, people sitting at a party and I can hear the voices of the people that I am still working with at a party 30 years later and I can hear where they sit and if I uh, if I let myself settle in for five minutes, I'm just there, completely there. It's like I only have to open my eyes and I see them and no other medium does that for me. Uh, so binaural audio was a, was a love of mine um, and um, somebody figured out that you need binaural audio to do VR head-tracked audio for uh, for goggles or for uh, anything you can turn your head in. And uh, so we kind of saw the opportunity that uh, that, that gave for, for making binaural audio from ambisonics. Um, and uh, we thought, you know, if, if we're not going to do this, then uh, what are we worth? This is, uh, this is just something that can sound incredibly lifelike, incredibly cool. And even if it's not going to be a commercial success, we need to be involved in this. We're going to learn tremendously from it. So um, back then we were with a, a few more people that could work at it. And uh, we allocated two years and, and four or five people pretty much uh, full time to uh, come up with uh, the ideas of the workflow um, and uh, the way it should sound in the reverb. Um, and then somewhere halfway, uh, obviously, uh, we found out that uh, that uh, Facebook was going to do their own free release of a set of tools. So we thought, okay, there goes the opportunity to actually make some money of it. But um, let's push on anyway. And uh, we were—I I think we were later than uh, than the Facebook suite, but uh, couldn't have been much more later. So it must have been somewhere around end of the summer of 2016 or something that uh, that we released our first uh, 360 pan suite, which was uh, a bunch of plugins that would work in conjunction f- to allow people to do uh, film post. Uh, on um, equi-rectangular videos, which is the type of video that is commonly used in in goggles or even on phones, actually, if you deliver it via YouTube, for instance. And uh, because they were facing tremendous problems just panning mono sources onto the subjects that they saw in the in the in the videos, and we uh, we thought of this nice workflow where we could uh, just put a puck onto the video screen itself. So the Pro Tools video screen was our example. Uh, you would put a, you would place a puck on there uh, and you would have to, with automation uh, recording uh, on the Pro Tools track, you could just move that puck over the video wherever you saw the person walking or the, the foley or the car or the helicopter or whatever. And... Um, then the panning would be correct in that uh, in that little in, in that um, production, and it turned out to be so important to get that completely right. The panning we hadn't really experienced that before either, um, because in you know in usual film it's not so important to get the panning absolutely correct, 
But in 360 VR, it is absolutely vital that the panning of like a voice uh, that that you think that that should emerge from a person you see on screen, it should be exactly panned onto that position. That's because the the viewer will turn his or her head towards that person on the screen and the audio will should then end up in right dead center in the middle and you're extremely sensitive to something being off center so it sounds completely ridiculous if it's only a few degrees off so it really had to be spot on and that uh, puck idea really worked to get that uh, get that right um so that that was mainly the the that was the basic idea, and all the other stuff was was added later uh, to uh, to make it sound more even more lifelike. But the short answer to your question is why did you go into that? Is because um, my personal hang-up was the binaural stuff, and that sounding absolutely real to me in some cases, when it was done right. And um, uh, that is just uh, um, very compelling, very, very interesting. You have a very clear goal. If it doesn't sound real, it's wrong. Uh, so you can test it very easily, so to speak. Uh, it's, a lot, that's, it's a lot easier to test stuff that way than, for instance, is it, does it sound beautiful? Because beautiful, you get your ears get tired very quickly if you have to work for a full day on beautiful audio. That is that is not so easy. But uh, A B tests, does this sound real? That is uh, not so hard. So it was a, a very compelling project to to test to to develop, and um, I'm I'm really happy with uh, with the result. And. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 glad we did it. Even though, uh, you know, the two big ears was bought by uh, Facebook and the stuff was released for free, um, which I hope helped the whole industry along, because um, that was the goal. I think that's why that's why they did it. Um, but uh, and and then afterwards, there were a few university suites being produced for uh, for free uh, from the Alto University, for instance. Um, also, uh, uh, classy stuff uh, in there, and then of course uh, the the French guys did uh, did their product, uh, and there was actually there was an, a, a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, from the community, from the development community for this for this type uh, of audio, and I'm pretty sure it all came from the same place. This ambisonics binaural thing had been lying around for decades, and nobody could find a use for it. And everybody that was in professional audio loved it to pieces, both the ambisonics and the binaural, um, and um, we were just sitting there staring at those at, at those two uh, subjects, binaural and ambisonics, and thinking, is this ever going to happen? And then all of a sudden there was VR audio. And then I thought, you know, this really has some legs. This we can we can this this can work. This could be big. 
it, it, this might be the future for Michael Gerson's ambisonics and the binaural audio as well. And, um, well, you know, it is still around. I'm not sure if it's big enough, but um, it does look like it's not going away. So uh, I'm I'm quite happy with that. It's 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 really it's really great technology, and it it sounds absolutely incredible when done right. I must say your vision paid off because, ironically, you outlived the 360 Spatial Workstation now, and hopefully you are back in the commercial contention. Yeah, well, you know, um, you we probably see. Uh, sales pick up a little bit on the 360 pan suite it's not like it didn't sell we we i think we earned our money back on the initial investment in time but um as you know um a couple of these gigantic vr opportunities were kind of missed um a couple of uh, gigantic projects were all but abandoned and uh it didn't really explode as much as uh, as we were hoping back then in 2016. There were a couple of uh, really uh, fundamental problems uh, in mostly people weren't, I guess, willing to put on goggles, buy them, or even put their phone into uh, uh, some sort of a little VR uh, playback device. And uh, I can completely get that. Every time I need to do that myself, it's a little bit of a sigh hoping that it'll work um, even for myself. But, uh, you know, the rewards are tremendous. Every time I get it working in some decent quality for anyone, people are completely uh, impressed still with this technology. But but even now, most of the people I talk to haven't actually experienced it yet in a proper way, which is a bit of a disappointment because we were hoping it would get bigger. Um, so let's see what happens with the, well, you know, the MetaQuest platform. Let's see what, where, where that goes, how many listeners we get uh, via that. That kind of leads us into our next question. Um, as a very experienced developer, what's your view on the current ecosystem of the tools um, and the out there for spatial audio? I don't think it's going to be a problem of uh, the tools available. Although you did point out a little bit before the talk started that uh, the encoder, the Facebook encoder, is very much in demand because people are unable to mux, which is combine video and audio, uh, ambisonics audio, with the Equirotangle video uh, right now because that, that thing is also abandoned. Um, so maybe, yeah, we need that in the very, very near future. But other than that, I think there are so many people studying in audio that um, must gravitate towards these technologies because they offer so much opportunity for research, for large setups, for, uh, for, for very nice projects for students that I think that um, the tools will just keep coming, really. I don't think the tools themselves will be, uh, will be a problem in the future. I think uh, people are very... Creative. I have interns every now and then that come up with great ideas and build them quickly um, in this uh, in this subject. Um, I think the tools will keep coming. I just hope that the large platforms won't will will keep supporting it. So 
For instance, it took a while for Pro Tools to create an ambisonics track. Then it took a while for them to create a third order ambisonics track. And I hope it uh, hasn't disappointed them that the Facebook guys went away because they were distributing the Facebook with the Pro Tools. Um, so now they don't. So now they don't have a solution. So I just hope that they're not going to take support of, for that out of it. Um, of course, we have Reaper. We have Nuendo implementing their own panners. Um, yeah, it, it's getting more and more stuck in the um, in the in the in the big. Uh, digital audio workstations. I, I, uh, I can, I, I don't fear for lack of tools in the, in the future. What I just hope is that um, for a kind of um, normal, regular listeners, uh, there will be a solution to actually be out there in virtual reality in a way that isn't scary, nauseating. Um, doesn't have too many wires or batteries going down, something like that, mostly. There are very promising uh, projects by, um, obviously, Apple, who has done uh, some, some, some new applications for, the, for uh, head-tracked audio with their see-through uh, AirPods. Uh, audio see-through transparent is what I should say. Audio transparent AirPods. Um, so um, I hope that that is uh, that 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 will actually move out of the gimmicky uh, uh, phase and um, really takes off into mainstream technology. That would be that would be fantastic. But but I I haven't seen that happening yet. From the tool side, I haven't. I don't fear as much but from the from the consumer side uh, I would like I would like more projects that are compelling for com consumers to do something and I guess you guys are working yourself to uh, make the content for that to help make create productions that that are compelling enough for people to I don't know immerse themselves in in the audio and the video. Let's switch the gears and move on to a hot topic, which is about convolution reverb. I have no doubt most of our listeners heard of Altiverb. You've pioneered the use of convolution reverb in an easy and accessible way for your user base, backed with ambitious portfolio of acoustic environments. But before we go any further, could you tell what is convolution reverb conceptually? Yeah. Um... You know, when when you zoom in on a waveform in your digital audio workstation, sometimes you um, what you can see is that they are actually little steps. So if you would record a sine wave, for instance, you can zoom in until you see tiny steps. Those are the molecules of digital audio. In fact, every waveform is made out of a sequence on CD, for instance, 44,000 per second, of spikes. Spike sounds like this. Those are my nails. That's a spike. Um, one louder than the other, obviously, um, so they can make up uh, a complete waveform. If you put all those spikes after each, then, um, each other, then you can make any waveform out of that, any audio. 
but the element is actually a spike and it's played back loud or soft or with inverted um, phase. So uh, minus a spike, so to speak. So everything is made out of a sequence of spikes. And that is the basic thing to understand about convolution. That whole digital audio thing is made out of spikes, a, a stream of spikes. And if you know the reaction to, of a system to that spike can be an equalizer, uh, but it can also be a hall, then uh, if you record the reaction of that hall to a spike, then you can just apply that reverb to every spike in the stream, which is really just mixing uh, a reverb tail behind every spike then it's going to sound like that spike was played back in that room using our speaker and the microphones that I put up there, that exact configuration. It's going to sound exactly like that configuration and so realistically that you can't tell the difference between me actually playing back music in that space and recording it or playing it back later through Altiverb, which is our convolution reverb, which has the spike response, which is called an impulse response, loaded of that system. So all we need to do is go out and record the reaction of rooms to a spike. That's all I do. So I travel the world, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, and um, then I end up in a room somewhere and I try to make it silent, and then I record the reaction of that room to a spike, and then I go home. That's what I do. Um, it's actually quite hard and also dangerous to, to play back a spike in a room. So what we end up doing is we record a sweep instead, and then we kind of compact that sweep into a spike, which has the added benefit of um, having a lot of energy, so good signal-to-noise ratio. But the result is a spike with a reverb, and the convolution reverb just processes uh, reverb tail behind every spike in your digital input audio stream. And obviously that's a lot of work. So originally convolution reverb was very heavy on the processor. In the meantime, it's computers are so quick that um, I can run a hundred altiverbs on my laptop. So uh, yeah, that's what convolution reverb is. And uh, you can do this impulse response trick on any linear time invariant system. Linear means that um, if you play something back twice as loud, you get exactly the same response from the system, from the room, from the hall, only twice as loud. That's what linearity means. And time invariant obviously means that it doesn't change over time, which it usually doesn't. And surprisingly, to my surprise really, acoustics are linear systems. So you can catch them in an impulse response and put them in a convolution reverb. And this is something that is counterintuitive because people think that sound waves interact in ways that make it the whole system chaotic and nonlinear. And it really isn't. There's only a slight element of nonlinearity in acoustic systems, but the vast majority of it is completely linear. So to such an extent, that I can't tell the difference between my actual recording, because of obviously when I'm there, I always play back a few fragments of music, dry music, in the room. When I'm on a recording session to record impulse responses, I also record the real thing. 
so that later in my studio, I can compare the real thing to the impulse responses and prove that they sound the same. I cannot tell the difference. Yeah, obviously, I have to mix in a bit of background noise with my uh, impulse response mock-up to make it sound exactly like uh, the real thing. But uh, I can grab that that um, uh, noise from the original recordings, so no problem. But then there is no difference. To me, that is still completely fascinating that, that it actually does work like that. And from that convolution trick, we did a lot of other convolution tricks. We did the same for the linear systems uh, in speakerphone, so speakers, um, and the nonlinear aspects of those of speakers. We just emulated with nonlinear digital signal processing, like uh, limiters and um, uh, distortions. Um, and we obviously did the 360 pan reverb as well, which is also a convolution reverb. Then we did indoor, which is a, a convolution reverb geared towards post-production, where you actually see some sort of a dollhouse and you can put microphones and speakers everywhere and even open up doors. So those are actually thousands of impulse responses of a single house packed into a, a graphical user interface that you can operate like a dollhouse. That's indoor. Um, and uh, I'm sure it won't stop there. Convolution is our thing now. So how long did it take to build a portfolio of impulse responses for your convolution reverb? Well, I'm still at it. Um, I'm very glad we took a model where we would sell the plugin and then forever and ever you get free new impulse responses. It was a, like a uh, double-edged sword, I think you, you call it. Um, on the one hand, it was easier if we didn't sell our impulse responses to users, then uh, it we had a better argument to actually get into the rooms that we required, that we wanted. Um, because as soon as you start selling impulse responses, the rooms are going to want their cut. Uh, and uh, we didn't. We gave them away. And we still do. And um, uh, we we are constantly recording since. So I've been recording for 20 years. Uh, new spaces. All sorts of different spaces. I, I did a, like a, a, a porta... Porta toilet the other week, uh, one of those plastic uh, toilets that that you see on the roads uh, on on building sites. <laughs> they have fantastic acoustics on the inside that uh, that are really hard to emulate. <laughs> but you make an impulse response, you go back to your studio, you sound a voice that you know really well in it, and it's just you know I I laughed my head off. It was it sounds so realistic. It's great. Was it brand new, empty one, or was it a uh, used one? <laughs> I, 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 I checked actually. It was just delivered, so I uh, had some some real time setting up uh, without um, running the risk <laughs> of uh, stuff <laughs> dropping in uh, in something nasty. Yeah, it wasn't you because obviously, no. as as it fills up, the acoustics would change over time. <laughs> you think so? You think that's how much it will fill up? <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, and uh, but also. Um, there are still concert halls that I, I would like to have that I haven't had. Um, I have this uh, little Bible on my uh, desk uh, of Leo Biranek. He was uh, an acoustician uh, that that um, ranked the halls by the halls in the world by um, interviewing directors, musical directors. Uh, and um, they had a, like a top 20 list in there. And uh, I'm there's still gaps in the top 20 list that I need to fill up. So uh, I'm still at it. Yeah. 
Same with studios, by the way. Um, there are always studios that I want to add. There, there's and and you know by now we have so many clients that, that are looking through our library that uh, there's always a couple of people that uh, say that that tell me you know I can't find. And then they say something like a sewer pipe. I can't find a sewer pipe in there. Why isn't there a sewer pipe in there? And then I say, yeah, well, you know, why isn't there a sewer pipe in there? So let's go out and, and record a sewer pipe. <laughs> and of course, you're going to ask me whether it's filled up or not. <laughs> but but um, uh, yeah, that's uh, it, it's just a blast to uh, to have a company that is that has one leg into software com- uh, in software uh, development and the other leg into recording. Well, you know, sound field. Field recording practice. It's great to be doing both, and I actually do both. So, uh, yeah, really nice. How many impulse responses do you have then? Oh, you know, it wouldn't be fair to use that number because from the from from some of the the classic gear that we also recorded that's in Altiverb. So there are spring reverbs and there's uh, EMT two forty uh, plates. Uh, Ancient digital reverbs, just seminal, um, out-of-production reverb units, we recorded all the presets or all the settings. And that's probably not what you mean, because by themselves, that's already hundreds per, per product. But when you, when, you, when you browse through Altiverb, you, you see, I would say, 50 concert halls and 50 music studios at least. I, I haven't... I haven't got a number for you uh, right off the top of my head. And then a multitude of uh, post-production spaces, planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, again. Um, so uh, many hundreds, if not thousands of spaces, I would say. Wow. You know, there's always people looking for stuff that isn't there. And sometimes it's because they have to really completely match uh, dialogue if they want to fake uh, uh, dialogue replaced sentences into production audio they need to be spot on with something so they can't just um, pick something that kind of works and uh, that is a real driver for new post-production spaces for us constantly um, and then there are people doing the same in music so uh, this guy recorded in this particular arena and now uh, the singer wants to replace um, a whole verse or maybe half a song with studio sung vocals because the, you know he, he was off tune or I don't know he was no that's that doesn't happen anymore I guess with autotune but but uh, something happens he wants to do it again then it needs to still uh, sound the same as the rest of the audio and because they mix in audiences, you hear the PA, you hear the acoustics, and it's really hard to match that stuff. So we have to go there and record that arena in that configuration. And I really like doing that. It's a, it's about Sometimes it's about matching. And other times it's about uh, a place being completely um, legendary, like the Pyramid uh, of Giza, um, you know, you can say it sounds like some sort of a bathroom. Uh, it's the king's chamber that we have an impulse response of, and then, of course, the excitement lies in the fact that that's a th- that that that's such an ancient space, and it's built for particular resonances and frequencies, um, and um, 
we can actually record that and make it sound in your studio. So sometimes it's that excitement, or maybe that the solo of Stairway to Heaven was recorded in that stu- particular space. Or um, So the legendary sometimes uh, adds in as well. And then there's just sheer beautiful. Uh, so some of these uh, little churches that classical recordists go to uh, to record uh, classical productions, they are sometimes hidden and tucked away in remote areas where no audience comes by. So nobody actually knows them, but they're on hundreds of records just because this engineer knows that it sounds absolutely glorious on music. And then if we go there, we sometimes are able to find out that that's really the case. So um, sometimes we add stuff just because it sounds absolutely fantastic rather than legendary or matching audio. But there's always a reason. There's always a reason to go out and record more stuff. Actually, you just reminded me of a book uh, I picked up uh, when I went to the lecture by Trevor Cox. He's a professor of acoustics at the University of Salford. The book is called Sonic Wonderland, Scientific Odyssey of Sound. Yeah. Um, and he talks about some of the incredible spaces where he pops the balloons. You know, there's this huge uh, facility that stored fuel during the Second World War in Scotland. And it's got loads and loads of interesting locations. I was wondering if you ever tapped into those sort of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Actually, Trevor is one of the people that alerted me to that particular space, uh, the Inchin Down oil storage tanks, which was supposedly the longest reverb in the world. So we had to get a taste of that ourselves as well. So uh, Trevor Cox is one uh, person that uh, led us to uh, make our feet dirty in that tank. So I went there as part of an Apple documentary, uh, which runs on Apple TV with Mark Ronson. He and I go down and Aram, my uh, colleague, uh, we go down into that tank to to record uh, that space. And it was absolutely uh, horrifying, uh, but also glorious at the same time. I was really happy. I made a, a few YouTube clips about it as well, so uh, they're, they're there as well. Inching down, me in the tank, in a coverall with a helmet on, with dirty hands because there's still oil everywhere, but uh, trying to play uh, a tin whistle in there, um, singing a few notes. Uh, it was uh, absolutely incredible while being there. And, and also... It was the longest reverb of the world as far as we know. We had uh, done a few very long ones, like in the Golgumbas in India, which is a, a large uh, temple. Another was uh, the, the gas storage in Oberhausen, which is a, a gigantic uh, gas container. Um, but uh, Inchen Down oil storage, which is underneath the, the, the lawns of uh, the... the the meadows of uh, Scotland, uh, hidden from view of uh, planes, uh, supposedly to uh, be able to replenish the oil in uh, marine ships. So kind of secretive, but uh, built out of concrete, one meter thick and completely silent uh, and with a ridiculous amount of reverb. I could hear my own voice more than half a minute in there. And um, after that, there was another half minute of that my... Uh, microphones could still hear the sweep that I was playing back. So we have a minute of reverb from there. It's ridiculous. I'm a big fan and long-time user of speakerphone for applications such as sound design and obviously post-production. Convolution isn't only about reverb. Uh, An emulation of frequency response of playback devices that you've mentioned earlier 
also has been a big part of your work. Um, can you describe the difference between the two approaches? Well, you know, they're they're really similar. Um, the large part, the, the 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 essence of speakerphone is actually that we got uh, a museum of uh, speakers, so speaker boxes, um, transducers, to uh, and we recorded them in our own studio for the most part, uh, so that you can make uh, your. Uh, voice sound through an ancient telephone or a mobile phone or um, a TV speaker um, or a radio. And of course, you can combine that with uh, altiverb-like reverbs so you can make the radio appear be- in, the, in the back of the kitchen or in the back of the, uh, of the hotel room or something. Um, so that's two convolutions going on in speakerphone, one for a speaker and one for a reverb. But obviously with speakers, obvi- uh, lots of other stuff that cannot be captured by convolution because it's not a linear time invariant process. They had to be added in separate modules and speakerphone adds that like the liquid liquid degradation, I call it, of uh, the original Skype calls. You could hear the voices just, I don't know, uh, drip to pieces sometimes or repeat buffers, uh, little artifacts like that. We we built modules to emulate that or Leslie speakers, uh, so speakers that swing around, we put that in. Um, distortion, obviously, um, or speakers that are mounted a little bit loose into their enclosures so they rattle rather than distort uh, so all these things you can switch on and off in speakerphone and most of the things are non-linear but the basis is uh, are linear processes that can be caught with uh, impulse responses and a regular convolution technology that we already did uh, in altiverb so uh, speakerphone i think of as a convolution product with add-ons it just doesn't need updates as often as altiverb because you know we we gave so many speakers in there to begin with um so there is less demand for new speakers every now and then of course new laptops emerge and new phones emerge so we go into the studio and record some more modern phones or laptops or tv screens so that uh, modern productions sound rather lifelike as well but um, I guess most uh, sound engineers aren't so interested in lifelike. As soon as the stuff starts to sound really hi-fi, they lose interest because, you know, it doesn't convey that it's a machine that you're listening to, so they rather use something old in speakerphone than something good-sounding. Same happened last week when I was in one of those um, concert halls that I recorded in. I decided to record the PA of that room as well. Uh, hoping that it would sound crappy, but um, unfortunately it didn't. It was a very hi-fi PA, so <laughs> so uh, the, uh, it doesn't sound PA-like at all to me. I think that's what that happens a lot in speakerphone as well. Yeah, so that's um, speakerphone is um, is an is another I would call hit product for us. Uh, it's all very very relative, of course, because I, I guess even Audio Post isn't such a big market that 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 a hit product means anything. But um, for us, it's uh, it is a, a stayer. It's now um, fourteen years old, I think, and um, it is still uh, going strong. It's the, I think it's the go-to plugin if you need what they call futzing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I, 
I have uh, grown to um, recognize uh, speakerphone in productions. Uh, sometimes I hear three or four simultaneously, for instance, in a series like Homeland on Netflix. There are so many screens and walkie-talkies and car radios and communications going on. Sometimes you hear people calling while you see them on a TV screen and you hear them calling in that TV screen and then you switch back and you probably know this better than I do being on the production audio side as well. But uh, the amount of perspective changes on scenes like that and then the amount of speakerphone switching involved with that is uh, horrendous probably. But I always get a kick out of uh, being part of being part of those scenes with speakerphone. I'm sure there's loads more that because in my opinion, it's a bit of a, like a stealth tool. I personally used it on, I don't know, I've, I've lost account how many projects I used it on, uh, including some current projects. And uh, the reason why I use it is because you want to emulate something. And if you've done it well, then it doesn't stand out as something that unusual. Or it just sort of blends in and it just delivers. Hence, it's difficult to pick up when it's used well, when it's uh, implemented correctly. Um, it's absolute lifesaver. I love that tool so much. Well, thanks, thanks. That's exactly what I like to do, and and it also taps into the to the first things that I said about binaural ambisonics. The combination can so can sound so um, chillingly lifelike that um, you don't hear its technology anymore. And even if you try to emulate technology, which is what speakerphone does when it tries to emulate a TV speaker, for instance, then it just sometimes it sounds just completely natural and it doesn't distract from anything that you're seeing on the screen while it's completely fake. And uh, I've had um, quite nice examples of that. There were whole marching band uh, scenes in films that they recorded uh, the the sound of. Um, and with megaphone music to the sides and uh, they had to replace the music in the megaphones and then uh, got away with it, um, matching it uh, to the production audio or the the arenas in uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody film, uh, stuff like that. It's, uh, it's, it's nice if, if the engineers get away with it because of speakerphone. Yeah, totally. And just to go back to the Altiverb, because um, obviously it's now integrated within the 360 pan suite as well. Could you expand on the process of capturing impulse responses for 3D specifically for spatial audio workflow? Yeah. Well, uh, our vision was um, we. Uh, I already explained how the the video screen in, for instance, Pro Tools, but also in Reaper. Uh, is this is the center of the mixing in um, in the 360 pan suite? So you basically you're staring at the video screen uh, on your on your Pro Tools, uh, and that's where you're panning your pucks per channel of uh, dialogue or folio or whatever are are visible, and you see the you see them as an overlay onto the video screen. You grab them right there. And you move them around, and then of course you record them with automation. Not only that, you can also right-click on a puck like that, and you can uh, automate its distance. So sometimes people stay in the same spot uh, on the screen, but they they walk uh, to the rear, so to speak. So their coordinates don't change, their x y coordinates don't change. It seems, but uh, they go further away. So how do you emulate that? You can of course. Uh, mix it softer 
which is one aspect, but also the acoustic, the balance between the acoustics and the uh, direct sound, so to speak, the dry sound, they change, obviously, when you go further away. So we wanted to automate that as well, right onto the video screen. So you right-click your puck, and then you automate the distance. For that, we needed a private line to, uh, like a send, from that video screen to uh, video screen puck to the reverb that is doing the acoustic work um, in the in the rear, and that's what the 360 pan uh, reverb is. It is a thing that has a private line to the panners that are operated via the pucks, and they have some sort of a private send to that reverb, and um, also the main thing is that the reverb. Um, doesn't uh, mess with the position that you panned your audio in. So it doesn't have a position itself. There is no position of the reverb. For that, we needed to record with an ambisonics microphone, which we did. So we went out, recorded new spaces. I actually, it was right before a trip I made, I had to make for, to London uh, for a couple of rooms. Um, so I was probably close to you there when I recorded the ambisonics concert halls, studios, and uh, uh, post spaces, um, mostly in London, for the 360 reverb, with an ambisonics microphone. So, um, and then we obviously cut off the direct sound, which is the first part of the impulse response. That's where you hear where the uh, speaker that, this, that plays back the sweep stands, because you want to kind of obscure that uh, where the direct sound come from because uh, all that matters is that it should sound where uh, the puck stay, sits on the screen. So where you pan your dry audio, that's where it should come from. And then in the reverb itself, but also as a slider in the puck, you can focus the reverb around that source. So you can have audio and its reverb appear from a certain spot on the screen and then go wider when it goes closer. So an application for that would, for instance, be if somebody starts talking while he's walking in a hallway towards the cantina that you are, as a listener are in, you hear the reverb, both the reverb and the guy talking from that direction before it opens up into the canteen um, and then uh, is all around you. That's when you want the reverb to follow the, the or track the panning of the original audio and, and open up around you. And you can automate stuff like that as well. And that allowed us to uh, define the reverb around the source, wherever it is, even while it is panning. So the reverb moves along with the panning and uh, make it wider or smaller. That's what was needed in... Uh, the 360 reverb, which deep down obviously has an engine that is similar to uh, Altiverb because it's four channels, actually more channels in, in higher uh, orders. But it needed these very specific things to VR audio, like the A-format recordings um, and the A-format reverb with adjustable width, the... Um, private back door for the sense of the panners that are supposed to remain post-pan but pre-fader. So, so the, the reverb amount stays the same even though the 
audio moves further away, that's the that's how you can tell that it goes further away or comes up closer if, if it moves the other way. So it, it did need a few very specific tweaks and new impulse responses. Other than that, obviously, it's another example of convolution. And um, so they resemble, but they needed some very specific things for... Uh, it, it needed a few specific things for 360 audio. And do you mind me asking what kind of microphones have you used or was there something that's more preferable? We used the first one that came out um, in that era. So uh, right in that 2016 boom, 2016 boom of um, VR audio and video, uh, the MBO of Sennheiser came out. And um, we got a copy of that uh, a few months before it was, uh, was done. So some sort of a beta copy and uh, we recorded with uh, with that microphone i uh, i tested it uh, in my studio to find out whether we needed to do any sorts of sort of equalization on it um, and um, they had done a fine job on the microphone it was there was a bit of noise which in my case was not a problem at all because i'm using sweeps to record the um, impulse response and then calculate the sweep out of the whole recording i end up with a signal to noise ratio that is uh, up to 20 to 30 db better than i could have recorded with the microphone to begin with so uh, noise is pushed away far but um, uh, it was a it was a nice and a trustworthy microphone to do the recordings for the 360 pan reverb with moving into talking about the future and where you see um spatial audio and 3D audio moving, what uh, technical and creative challenges as well as opportunities for modern software developers do you see specifically for 3D audio tools? You know, when I myself was working on the, um, on the limiter that is in 360 pan suite, um, I found out how hard it is to comply with delivery rules for these different platforms. It was quite a headache and we had to come up with a, like a measurement ourselves, which we called K-LUFs. Um, there wasn't a real way to measure the loudness of, um, of Ambisonic's audio to begin with because it's not like you don't tie a channel of Ambisonic's to a speaker, you decode it to something. And it depends on where you look, how loud it is, really. Um, back then, I thought the standardization of delivery would be uh, something that is a, a challenge, to use one of your the words you used in the question. That, that's a challenge, I think. How loud, how many channels, in what format do you want to deliver? It's a, it's a bit of a headache, uh, as you probably know, tossing around... Um, especially third-order ambisonics, when even the extensions on the split audio files aren't in compliance with each other. It's, I began my talk about explaining how AudioE started converting between audio formats. I'm really happy I'm not actually doing a tool that converts between all the different flavors of uh, possible 3D audio delivery formats. It's a, it's a bit of a headache, not just... Fuma and Ambix, but also really in the file formats and the name extensions and the channel order 
and how do you call the headlocked files and how loud should you be for delivery on YouTube? How loud should you be for MetaQuest? Can this be brought into compliance with each other? There's a big challenge and I hope that uh, the market is big enough for somebody to pick that challenge up because I don't really look forward to doing it. And um, other than that, um, the, the main challenge in tools, I would guess, is uh, on the delivery side, there should be quality uh, headphones where you can load up uh, different uh, head-related transfer functions, so basically different ears for the binaural side easily and it should sound right and um, those are things that I'm afraid haven't been tackled yet completely. So what lies ahead for spatial audio? I hope what lies ahead for spatial audio is uh, something mainstream and not something boutique because we've been able to enjoy spatial audio in this quality that we're doing today for decades already. I had my binaural recordings. Ambisonics was there, the third order as well. We could decode to binaural Ambisonics decades ago. So there's nothing new. It just was boutique hi-fi and uh, not mainstream. So if you're asking what lies ahead, I'm hoping it'll be something mainstream, whether it MetaQuest or something else. But I'm fearing... Um, it might not uh, work out uh, as long as you need dedicated uh, to buy dedicated hardware that needs to be loaded up and put it on your on your head. It, you need to have something that is much closer to the uh, Apple AirPods, for instance, that you can use from day uh, for other purposes from day to day, and that happen to also do immersive audio. So. You have it loaded up, you um, have it within reach anyway, and then you can start appreciating the difference between just stereo and immersive. So I guess Apple not backing out uh, makes me hopeful that immersive audio will, uh, will become mainstream. With Sony jumping on it, um, with um, Apple Music jumping on it, it might just happen this time. I'm really hoping that. Excellent. Arjun, what is the best way to find out about yourself and the work you do in the world of software? I guess uh, our YouTube channel, maybe our website, but um, I uh, I tend to get lost on websites myself. So um, uh, I would say, uh, you know, type in AudioEase on YouTube and see what others and we ourselves have to say about our products. I... I um, I pride myself in making the first real audio plug-in product videos. Back then, when uh, when there were uh, videos appeared, it was uh, they were exclusively made by Sonic State, uh, a website uh, uh, that was a vlog or a blog uh, about audio gear. They would just come by at your NAMM show booth, and you could talk to them rather than to other clients. And they would film while you talked in the noise of a NAMM show. It's a trade show in Los Angeles. And um, they would slap that online and that was your product video. And I thought, you know, that is a really nice idea. It's just that I would like to do this in the silence of my own studio. So I started doing that. And um, that was 
not, not far from the emergence of YouTube. Uh, so we could put on uh, a nine-minute video of Alterup 4 or 5 on there. And I didn't know any other company doing that. And um, right now, of course, it's, it, it's, the, it, it's what everybody does. But it's still our main vehicle. If you want to know about speakerphone, what you do is you type in speakerphone on YouTube Maybe audio e speakerphone actually, because otherwise you'd end up at something speakerphone like <laughs> a real speakerphone. And then um, I explain in a ten to fifteen minute video what uh, what the product does, and I make it my personal goal to reel you in within the first minute. So um, uh, you should say, "Man, this sounds great! I want to have it within a minute." So I'm warning you, but. Um, uh, also, I'm telling you that uh, it's probably, especially to people in the audio industry, it, it, they, they should be entertaining videos and they should be packed with content rather than hype. Um, so you stay listening. And um, yeah, it's, it's a real challenge to work for years on a product and then explain it in 10 minutes. But it's a really nice uh, way of uh, condensing the work and making it uh, yeah, relevant so I would say the, the YouTube videos that we do. Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Well, um, I've been thinking about this a little bit, but I don't think it's an advice from somebody else. It's something that I did pick up from, uh, being, from, from developing audio products, and it has kind of stuck with me. Um, so I already told you how this subsidy hunter put us onto making Alteverb just by asking us, just come up with something technologically novel so that we can get some money from the state for it. This was a guy that was basically saying, just come up with something, I don't care. Come up with something. And um, so we came up with something and that became Alteverb. And that's not nothing. And it happened to me again, actually, my colleague Aram who was in me uh, in with Mark and me in the in that oil storage tank and has been recording with me for for 20 years now um, Aram um, he I, I, he's a couple of years younger and he was a music technology student as well and uh, I uh, helped I was uh, uh, evaluating his uh, his internship or something. He did his internship at at AudioEase, or he was that was his end project. So the assignment I gave him and his colleagues uh, for his end project was, um, you know, what I want you guys to do is finish a product. I don't care what product, but finish it, because in software, if you don't finish it. You have nothing. You don't have like three quarters of a product. An unfinished product is unreleasable, so you have nothing if it's not finished. So try and finish a product. I don't care what. Just come up with a few ideas. So there were three guys sitting in front of me that had to come up with some ideas who were told, I don't care what it is. And they came up with ideas quickly. We wrote them down. We sparred, and within like 15 minutes... Uh, a product was kind of born, which was called the Delay Lama. And maybe some of the listeners remember this, but that was a gigantic hit. It was a VST plugin. It was a free VST plugin of a little monk, which was supposed to be the Dalai Lama or the Delay Lama. And he was singing notes. 
and you could he was animating inside a plugin so you could see him sing and um he sang like ah and you would be able to to uh, play midi into it and it had a a voice synthesis algorithm that you could have portamento slides bends and stuff it, it didn't sound very spectacular but the combination of the animation and the audio uh, made it a gig- and the fact that it's free made it a gigantic hit and wherever I went with Aaron to trade shows, he would be wearing a Dile Lama t-shirt and he would be, uh, he, everybody would shake hands with him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that was a learning experience. And I thought, you know, we were just sitting there, four guys, 15 minutes, spouting ideas. And the advice is, when you boil that down, those two things, the, the, the subsidy guy with Alteverb and me sitting in front of those guys, is that... Um, Making a product is a decision. It's not divine inspiration. It's a decision. You just sit down and you decide, we're going to make a product. Shoot. We're just going to finish it completely and then bring it out. And then along the way, if you're with a bunch of creative people, it's going to, it's going to evolve into something great. Pretty much always. It's ridiculous. But it works like that. So making a product is a decision. And... That probably goes for a book and a song as well, but I can't really vouch for that. But making something, um, you shouldn't wait for the for the inspiration to come and then do something. You you actually got to sit down and decide, I want to make something now. And then something will pop up. And it happens every time when we finish a product, we sit there and we say, okay, now what? And then within 15 minutes, we know what we're going to do the next three years. So that would be my advice. If you want to make a product, sit down and make a product and and don't wait for some inspiration to come. It helps if you can spar with somebody. So if you can talk to somebody, I'm sure. But that's my that would be my advice. No, I love that. I think that there's a lot of um especially creatives that, you know, get too caught up in just trying to, you know, into the weeds of, you know, making something and uh, you know, not releasing things because, again, you can't make a decision. And it, it's, uh, I think, very much about, you know, sometimes you just have to make a decision. Exactly, exactly. I, I always think of people that write comedy. Sometimes I'm looking at a comedy and then I laugh at a joke that I see and I think, geez, this this joke must have started like three years ago when the, when the, the guy wrote the script and then the, they need to rehearse the joke and then they need to shoot the joke and then they need to mix the joke and light the joke. And at the end of that, nobody will laugh during production. Uh, so they're all hoping that it's funny and they're just trusting their instinct from or, or the instinct of the guy that wrote it down to begin with. And they're all executing that to the very end so that I can laugh at it. But um, but a joke feels to me like especially hard to just completely finish. There's doubts always all when you make a product, but you should trust your first instinct. Um, if, if you like it, uh, in your first idea, then people are going to like it uh, when they see it for the first time. Absolutely legendary stuff. Arjun, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to us today. We really enjoyed that. I've learned so much. It was great to have you. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Oliver. It was really nice. Thanks again. And take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.
If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.